Yesterday, I was on a dart leaving from Docky, which some people may know is like near the start of the dart line on the south side. Mm. And even before I got onto it, it was already packed to the rafters, like like an old fashioned Indian train with people hanging off the side of it. Oh, except God. all the people were young women on their way to the Taylor Swift concert. What a specific and, demographic. Yeah. So thanks be to the all holy technology gods that we attack quite often, but still appreciate. Mm. Um, I had uh, noise cancelling headphones, so I immediately plopped them on, started listening to the book I was listening to before. Mm -hmm. And uh, a girl got on and she was obviously so super excited that she just had to talk to whoever she was, whoever made eye contact with her. So she started mouthing something at me. So I had to take off my headphones and I was like, sorry, what? And she goes, oh, are you listening to Taylor Swift? Um <laughs> No, I am listening to an audiobook about the British general election of 2016. And she just kind of looks at me and goes, I'm not oh. familiar with that album. <laughs> Is that a new one? Has she just dropped one? Oh, that's so Beyonce. <laughs> so I just kind of nodded and then put the headphones back on and slowly drifted further into the corner. And I mean, holy crap, there were so many young girls and women just like vibrating with the excitement to go see because she played in Crow Park, which has got like 88,000 capacity for mm. what people are sitting down. But mm. then they open up the pitch as well. So it must be like another feckin' oh nearly 100,000 probably. I'm so glad I didn't live uh, next to Crow Park when that happens. Like I used to live right across the road from Crow Park. Yeah. And when like One Direction, when that gig happened. Oh, yeah. Oh my God, that was a very specific apocalypse I experienced that weekend. Yeah, and Edge Sheeran as well. But he seems to attract crazy super fans of all ages. Because <laughs> mm, yeah. I remember I stopped at a petrol station on the day of the Ed Sheeran concert, <laughs> like somewhere very far away from Dublin. But it was yeah. obviously halfway from where these women were coming from and they were all getting off a bus to like reload their bottles of whatever they were drinking and mm. like take peas and get food and stuff. Mm. They were all like anywhere between the ages of 10, super excited, up to 50, even yeah. more excited. Oh, oh Ed Sheeran, woo! So when you said Ed Sheeran there, I heard Veg Sheeran. Well, like, that's I mean, a far more fitting name for him. He essentially is just a vegetable. I mean, I'm not going to deride Taylor Swift because apparently she's all hip and happening. But come on, people. Ed Sheeran is just a ginger tosser. That's all he is. Why? Everyone knows this. He may be nice, but he's just a fellow with a guitar. That... I, can't, I just can't get vegetable Sheeran out. <laughs> that's all he is. He's potato Sheeran. That's what he will be forever. Oh. enough vegetable cheer and talk yeah let's get let's get down to politics yeah so let's do some news before we get into the episode yeah 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 so as always only three things have happened only three things um i think i'm going to title this new segment please please won't somebody think of the children <laughs> excellent because two of the three stories are about children and technically mm. the third one could be about children in the context of you know future generations and all that absolutely so the first one is trump has built detention centers to house the children that his immigration services are uh, separating oh. from their parents. I haven't read The Maze Runner or much young adult fiction, but I think that's how The Maze Runner starts. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I haven't read or seen the movies, but I've seen the trailers and I get it's like it's like The Hunger Games with, with mazes. more contrivance, if that could be even true. Yeah, so every summer immigration numbers spike from people trying to get from, the, from Mexico to the US. But these people aren't just coming from Mexico, they're coming from all around uh, Central and South America. Right, but they're just crossing over that border. Yeah, they're crossing over the border because that's... Mm. that's do we have a reason why it's it spikes in the summer? I guess it's just easier because there's less, um, like the monsoon season and stuff makes it a lot more difficult to travel across land when you're trying to make your way right. to that border. 
So yeah. it's been the bane of all presidential life. So although like in general, illegal immigration on that border is actually dropping. Um, mm-hmm. It's just this big spike that, that puts severe pressure on the immigration services down there and American presidents to try and deal with it. So this year, Jeff Sessions, uh, Trump's attorney general, has initiated a zero tolerance policy, which includes any illegal migrants that are uh, captured after they cross the border are being arrested mm. and detained in federal criminal centers mm. as if they were any kind of criminal right, because okay. they're just like clamping down. Right. Obama kind of did this as well, but he, whenever the, whenever there were families captured, um, he didn't separate the families from their kids, the adults from the kids because... That's barbaric. Yeah, but part of the zero tolerance thing is that Jason just like, fuck it, I'm going to do it. So the adults are sent to prisons basically and... Mm-hmm. Now the kids have been separated from their parents and they have to be sent into detention centres. Oh my God. They've actually bought and refurbished a Walmart in Brownsville, Texas that they're using as basically a child camp. Jesus. I cannot think of a worse place. Yeah. (laughs) There's actually, there's photographs of it and to make it even creepier, there's actually a mural on a wall with President Trump's face and an American flag and like a little ditty written about American patriotism, both in Spanish and English. Oh it's, my god! It's horrific. Um, oh. Yeah, it's pretty gross. People are freaking out about it because Absolutely. obviously it makes it makes America look very bad. Sessions and Stephen Miller, who would be kind of like Sessions' main brain man, and he's he's thought to be the the policy brains behind most of the strictest um, Trump policies. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're not giving up. They're not giving any ground at all. Mm. So and has Trump been vocal on this at all? He's actually getting kind of uncomfortable about it because Trump has got a particular foible that he hates seeing kids in distress on television. So he is seeing these pictures, and his reaction is to try and blame the Democrats by saying it's their policy. What if they don't want it to happen, then they should fix their policy? Is it Democratic policy? No, <laughs> that's really no. weird thing to say. Oh, it's it's a total Trumpian um, rhetorical technique. He's basically yeah. just trying to turn it around. It doesn't make any sense. And like he's saying, well, he's he, the first. I think the initial contrivance was to try and put it on the Democrats to do a deal on immigration in Congress Mm. which they've been trying to do and they can't get it because Trump is too strict on what he wants and they don't want to give that much ground on the on the different parts that they're that they're trying to fight for. Right. But equally, he's in charge of the executive. They are his officers and his attorney general that are actually making these decisions to split up families and put kids in the detention centers. Oh my god. Yeah, using so, kids using kids as leverage to do anything. Yeah, what they're trying to do is they're trying to make it absolutely impossible that someone would consider leaving their home to go to America. Like they're trying to make it worse to go than it is to stay. And it's, staying is pretty fucking horrible as it is. So Absolutely. And it's yeah. so crazy to think to go to go from something like this the DACA Dreamers Act, which acknowledges the fact that the kids of illegal immigrants, like it's not, it's not their fault. They didn't have a choice in the matter and to extend some sort of like legislative help to them. And then to go from something like that to this just seems like turning on a dime in the complete opposite direction. Well, that's one of the reasons why he's been, Trump has found it so difficult to try and do anything on the Dreamers thing. He's actually behind giving the kids like recognition. They're not even kids now. Most of them, a lot of them are adults. Yeah. But his Republican congressional contingent are just totally against it. So he can't push too far. Mother of God. Yeah, pretty shit scenes going on in America. Yeah. Is, do you have a happy story to follow this one? Uh, no, not yet, unfortunately. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> there is a kid called Billy Caldwell. He's from Northern Ireland. Uh, mm. He's about 11 years old and he has suffered since he was born with extreme epilepsy. Yes. He could have up to 100 seizures a day. And there's only a handful of drugs that are able to treat him. And eventually the doctors were, of the NHS were able to give him enough medication to help him. But unfortunately, the side effects from the medication were almost as bad as the side effects of the disease itself. So they were stuck in a rut. Um, his name, his mother's name is Charlotte Caldwell. Mm-hmm. And eventually they found out 
that cannabis oil is like mm-hmm. a miracle cure for this particular ailment. Mm-hmm. If he takes cannabis oil three times a day, he has zero seizures. Yeah, 100 to so, zero. That's a massive, massive. It's insane. I mean, yeah. this kid is already incredibly brain damaged from the amount of seizures he had. He's a very disabled young boy. So any kind of help that he can get is obviously incredibly appreciated. Mm-hmm. So his GP in Northern Ireland was granted a special license by the Home Office to to prescribe the cannabis oil, but then it was taken away. So Who took it away and on what grounds? The Home Office did on the grounds that it contains THC, which is a class one narcotic. Mm-hmm. It's basically, it's the happy stuff in marijuana that, make, that make, it makes people happy. So that's, that is an active component as part of the medicine. Mm-hmm. Because this is the thing, like there are recreational drugs, but equally things like morphine, morphine is essentially a medicinal version of heroin. Mm. It just, it does nearly the same things as heroin does, except it's being used to treat. Yeah, the application is the is the um, difference. Yeah, the application is the difference. So cannabis oil is kind of like the same. Well, you don't get the heady high that you get when you smoke um, cannabis that you mm. do when you just take the oil. All it does is just kind of makes a little makes you a little bit elated, um, but at the same time just kind of suppresses pain and suppresses epileptic seizures. Absolutely. Um, so she travelled to Canada to get a six month supply because it's perfectly easily get over in Canada. Mm-hmm. And as she was coming back through London at the start of this week the home office customs officers seized all the medicine. And she, I assume she had like the proper paperwork that, to say that, you know, this was... Yep. And she they, just, the they pap- just completely ignored it. They just ignored it and said it's legal here. We can't allow you to take it in. Lord, what happened after? He was immediately hospitalised um, with extreme seizures. Oh he was God. essentially in a constant seizure that almost put him into a coma and caused even more brain damage as the drugs were sitting like a couple of miles away in a customs office at the airport. Horrendous. So Billy is lucky that Charlotte is incredibly brave enough to be willing to push this issue and become a massive advocate for not just like her own son's treatment, but also pointing out that this is, this can be used as a very, very good medicine. Mm -hmm. And obviously here is a case in point. Here's my son basically suffering extreme pain in in bed because because he can't get the proper medicine. So the, the home office were like, look, it's not legal here. Sort something else out. Here's the name of three Neuro, neuroscientists, neurobiologists neuro, um, who can help you out. Mm-hmm. One of them said he was too busy. One of them wouldn't answer the phone. God. And the other one was on holidays. So she oh couldn't get any God. help. As her son was basically suffering in hospital. Oh my God. So eventually, after kicking, kicking up a fuss, and this was huge news all across the UK media for the week, mm. um, she managed to get 20 days worth on a special license from the, from the Home Secretary. Direct from the Home Secretary. Direct from the Home Secretary. Wow, um, the fact that it takes that. Yeah, but it's only 20 days. And then after that, she's she's throwing her hands up and saying, what are we going to do now? Start this whole thing over again? Yeah. So it's it's insane. It's it's crazy. God, won't somebody please think of the children? Yeah, exactly. This is just an, this is an example of like the state the state system that we have. And like this is the same in Ireland. We have the exact same restrictive laws on these things. So there's mm-hmm. people in Ireland that could be using this drug that can't get access to it. It's just, it's just a matter that oh, we can't allow this to be legalised because it's got the same stuff as weed and weed is bad. Weed is what the hippies use. Right, so we yeah, can't exactly. let that happen. So, third story. And this is a happy one? I'm going to spin it as a happy story. It's a story oh, yeah. that if, if you missed, then it's because you either threw away all connected devices and refused to look at any headlines over the last week. It is Trump and Kim hanging out in Singapore, making a oh, deal. Skipping around together, getting ice creams. Yeah, it was adorable. Um, riding a tandem bike. Yeah, oh, I mean... And see, then, right now, how much money would you pay to see them riding a tandem bike? All my money. <laughs> <laughs> and they fall over. 
I would dedicate all my money and my next five years earnings just to that if they did could ever, let it happen. Did I ever tell you about my bucket list? Tandem bike riding is one of it. I don't have many things on my bucket list. I think right now this is probably the only thing. But it's I want to go to like a busy park and ride a tandem bike by myself but be visibly crying. <laughs> I don't think you understand the concept of bucket list. That's more like a prank that you would do to like film and let people laugh at. That's not something that you have to do before you die. Are you saying are you saying I'm doing I'm living my life wrong? I'm 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 saying you're doing bucket lists wrong anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, North Korea got one of its bucket list checklists done anyway because they mm. managed to meet an American president for the first time since their country's creation, big which deal. is a huge huge deal. So they're very happy. Um some people have spun it as being an absolutely empty conference because they kind of just got like general hints towards denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula, but right. no actual strict timeline. Do you think, though, as as a first step, it was always going to be kind of vague and with no real concrete promises made? Um, like it was always going to be that way, or do you think it's just because of the parties at play? Yes, yeah, no, it was. There was there, like this has happened before. Basically, Clinton kind of got a similar deal, mm. and uh, Bush did too, where the the North Koreans agreed to do like general hints towards something in the future in mm. exchange for the lifting of sanctions that they had on the time. But then nothing ever came of it. They just continued developing their arsenal. Ah. So I honestly don't think that the Koreans will denuclearize by choice because as as a regime, it would be the stupidest thing in the world for them to do. Right. And not only that, but like the physical safety of Kim and his his chums would be severely endangered. Yeah. It's, it's basically keeping them alive, both right, from right. external attack and potential internal discombobulation. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't believe him when he says he's going to do that. Okay. But at the same time, a year ago, we put out an episode called Fire and Fury because we thought <laughs> Donald Trump was going to start a Korean war. So th- yeah, this is my next question. He was not so long ago referring to Kim as Little Rocket Man. And, yeah, and making- Kim called him a daughter. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and now they're lovey-dovey. Yeah, they're lovey-dovey. Lovey dovey. Lo- what happened? Um, it, the Koreans changed tack. The Koreans, they they stopped acting like they had done before. They started actually sending out feelers. They Apparently they initiated this a year ago when they got onto a businessman that they had contacts with who kind of knew Jared Kushner and said, we want to meet Jared Kushner because we hear he's a guy that can get us in touch with the president. Jared Kushner being his son-in-law. And <laughs> Is this like at a disco when your mate's send over yeah. and to someone else's mate going hey my friend fancies you except it's it's like if the week before you guys were at you and the girl were at the disco and you had a fist fight outside <laughs> and, she, and she won yeah hey. but now she's now hey, have she's you been reading my teenage diary <laughs> is that on the bucket list as well <laughs> to get back at Susie yeah but I'm gonna I'm gonna take people back because it has been mentioned by a few smarter people so I'm gonna steal their line um this kind of happened before. In, in the 70s, Nixon, who we talked about in the Watergate um, episode, not a great president, but did a couple of good things. One Sorry, being, I was say, not a great episode. <laughs> no, it was a great episode. But it's a not great, a great episode. President. I love that episode. Nixon decided that he wanted to open up American relations with China because mm. up until the 70s, um, China was, they were kind of like what North Korea are to the rest of the world. Like everyone hated them. No one recognized them. They didn't want anything to do with them. But Nixon just went basically with no real pre-negotiation, like only a couple of little, a couple of little meetings between secretaries of state and the the Korean foreign minister, and then all of a sudden Nixon turned up and surprised the world and opened up relations. And people were like, "Oh my God, this is ridiculous! You're giving a tyrant um, a, a attention when he doesn't deserve it, and you're not mm. going to have any any results." And skip forward forty years later, and America and China are essentially the two biggest trading partners in the world. Mm-hmm. And China has been able to open up and enter the world stage without any conflict. Yeah, and thrive. And thrive. So granted, China is still an apparent regime that, that 
is not very nice to its citizens. But yeah, skip over that. Skip over that. There hasn't been a nuclear war. <laughs> True. <laughs> between, yeah, it swings and roundabouts. Swings and roundabouts. So that's probably what's going to happen with this Trump and Kim thing. Although. The difference being that the people that run China then turned out to be a bit... They turned out to be level-headed. Mm. Uh, it's we not can't say yet, the same now. <laughs> we can't yet say the same. You, right. Time time will tell. So hopefully Kim isn't just pretending to do this because he's secretly moving um, submarines into San Francisco Bay and Hudson Harbour and, and places like that to launch World War Three next week. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. Um, no, it's a happy story. It's a happy story. Yeah, it is a happy story. Speaking of San Francisco, Steve, do you know what I was doing this time last year? Something gay. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was living in Castro, the gay neighborhood in San Francisco, playing dildo ring toss with a man named Wayne uh, as part of the Pride Parade and the Pride Festival there. And now okay. I'm and now I'm sad because because I, I, I missed oh. that time and I need to be cheered up. Okay, um, well, let's talk to someone about the history of Pride and learn a bit about all the all the effort and struggle that went into getting us to where we are today. Hooray. So that you were able to play dildo ring toss with Wayne in public in Castro, and in fact, challenge anyone you want to to play dildo ring toss, no matter oh, what their man, gender. I wouldn't challenge Wayne; he's very good. Oh, I'm sure he is. Okay, I don't know if you're pitching right. Wayne was wearing the dildo. <laughs> That's how it worked, and you had to throw it and get it onto him. And he's he's a slippery motherfucker. Oh, I so. thought it was like a one on one kind of thing. Oh, that, no, okay. no, no, he's wearing it. And it and adds a whole other dynamic to the game. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it really does. Damn you, Wayne. Wayne's basically <laughs> running around and you're throwing rings at him. But anyway, it's fun. I, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I'd say I'd have to go for the older dude, Bob, who's like really uh, like re- in the 70s and he, they still have to try and toss it onto him. But he's like, oh, you got to catch me. <laughs> uh, yeah, Bob's a nice guy. Who are we going to talk to? We are going to talk to Tony Walsh, who runs the queer arch- Irish Queer Archive at the National Library. He mm. is the curator. Mm. Yeah, so we talked to him with a great L chat. This was a lovely, lovely chat. I, I certainly learned a lot about the LGBT stro- struggle in Ireland and worldwide like and from a like not not just like a, a disassociated very clinical recounting like a really personal take on it that was tony was there for tony was there tony like tony lived it and th- this yeah. is an, an emotive retelling of a very interesting time in in world history but particularly irish history like this is this is applicable to the world as a whole because these stories were ubiquitous at the time but told through the lens of what happened in ireland and i I'm ashamed to say I didn't realize the the sheer sheer extent and the power of some of the stories and it was it was yeah like I said an emotive conversation and it really got to me but it ended on probably the loveliest note of any episode we've ever had and it just war- warms my cockles to think about it. I would be worried about us building up the episode too much in advance when we do when you do this but I'm actually not now so I'm happy to say here's Tony. I'm just curious what sort of room are you in? Oh, um, just, I'm in my bedroom. Okay. It's not special at all. It's a super duper <laughs> studio, though. In fairness, he usually sounds better than us in actual studios. Yeah, I, I have I have a corner in my room that I, I designate out, and I just I've turned it into a little studio setup, and it's generally pretty foolproof, except for there's this one lad who lives on my street, and he insists on driving by, blaring like Stormzy and like just grime music. <laughs> so he might he might he, I like to consider him a guest appearance on the show. He's kind of our co-producer at this point. Well, Storm. Political, so that suits. Yeah. Are you cracking open a beer, you motherfucker? <laughs> Sorry, I tried to do that really subtly. <laughs> you bastard. 
And Tony's back from a boozy lunch. I'm the only, the only sober yeah. person here. God damn it. I was offered some MD about an hour ago <laughs> on Fade Street. He only took a half though, you know. <laughs> no, I didn't want to ruin the broadcast. So um, I decided to sort of forgo it. Mm. <laughs> Tony, you just ranted for 70 minutes about God knows what. It was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're here with Tony Walsh. Um, hey, Tony. Hi, Richie. Hi, Sue. <laughs> I was about to list your job title as director of the Irish Queer Archive, but of course that is only a minuscule in the amount of stuff that you do. Well, I'm flattered, but I'm actually that's a bit of a misnomer. I'm, I'm an independent curator, which is another way of saying I volunteer my services. I'm not paid <laughs> and I work independently of the National Library of Ireland. I just make it my business to wander around the country corralling people into contributing and depositing for the collection that's now known as the Irish Square Archive in the National Library of Ireland. We'll actually get back to the details of the archive itself, but the reason we have you on the show is to chat about Pride, because by the time, it's not yet Pride when we're recording, but by the time this episode will be released, it will, of course, be Pride Week. Rainbow flags will be flying. Hopefully the weather will still be just as good and people will be partying and having a good time, celebrating all things that are queer. So we thought we missed it last week, our last year, because we weren't, um, organized enough basically to get a good get us. I wish we had a better reason. But <laughs> no, that was just it. It was just like, just oh never, crap, we totally missed this one. God damn it. Yeah. So we thought we can't let it happen again. That's why we have Tony in the studio to tell And of us. course it is a really historic pride because we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of decriminalization and that's that's huge. Word enough reason to sort of come into studio and have the chats. I thought because it's a political podcast, you're about to give Leo a bit of a, a spin there for like his second year as a, <laughs> as giving gay T-shock. But of course, maybe the politics of Tony will turn out to be different. <laughs> okay, so Tony, we're going to start it off by talking the base levels of Pride. Um, where did it start? What what kind of what what's its deal basically? By general consensus, universal consensus, Pride, the modern uh, Pride LGBT Pride movement started in Stonewall in the United States in New York in 1969, but. Actually, I mean, if you want to be picky, if I wanted to be picky, I could suggest that the European, the modern European uh, gay civil rights movement began in Berlin in the 1910s with attempts to um, uh, um, decriminalise the German penal code. There was, for anyone who'd be familiar with uh, the writer Christopher Isherwood or the Bob Fosse film Cabaret with, uh, that was made in the 1970s with Liza Minnelli, that looked at sort of Weimar era Berlin. There was a flourishing gay scene in Berlin. There were six lesbian gay newspapers in the 1910s and 20s, over 100 lesbian gay bars. There was a, a trans and, and, and drag transvestite scene. And of course, unfortunately, all of that was obliterated by the Nazis when Hitler became chancellor in 1933, when the first things he did was actually brand all of those people degenerates and made it his business to obliterate any memory of that. As a result, it's part of our, I would say, recent because it's almost 100 years ago but it's part of our of our European cultural history that we have tended to sideline and forget about. If you mean the persecution of... Yes and also the fact that we are part of we are part of a a, a sociocultural and political di a dynamic in mainland Europe that stretches back to the beginning of the 20th century. I mean, the, the world's oldest uh, gay uh, newspaper was founded in the late 19th century, for example. Um, and that's something that, that many, many people forget about. I think, um, you know, the reason why we look to Stonewall is because it's more recent. It was, and it was well documented. It's kind of tied into civil rights in the area yeah, as well. Yeah, and all of that yeah. as well, yeah. And there's no harm actually to have that as well. But I also think too, sometimes it's, it's important that 
this is to me wearing my my historian's hat. I think sometimes it's important to recognise that we are part of a, a movement that goes back much further. And and in fact, that was in the mind of people who established Dublin's second LGBT community centre, the Hirschfeld Centre, back in the seventies. It was precisely named the Hirschfeld Centre to reconnect with that uh, German and Dutch uh, history in the early part of the twentieth century. So we've given the history its credit. And so just talking about then the pride and what it is today, would you say that that came from Stonewall in 69? Or like, for example, we're talking specifically about the week long celebration of, of queer culture in the different cities. Well, Pride now is celebrated in a different, various times of the year all around the world. The uh, Scandi Nordic countries actually don't particularly celebrate it, uh, especially celebrated in, in uh, June. There are calls here to actually celebrate Equality Day in May uh, to recognise the transformative impact of the marriage ref vote back in 2015. But um, it tends to be, it tends to happen in June around the world. And in the case of Ireland, I think We've been celebrating Pride in one, frame, in one um, form or another since 1974. We marked in, in, in June because, of course, we're influenced by um, the American cultural models, the um, Stonewall dates. But it's also, in the case of Ireland, there were many different cultural strands. I mean, I think, here's the thing, and very, very quickly, um, I think we sometimes ignore the impact of the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Movement, the impact of the Irish Women's Liberation Movement. They're all 1970s. Uh, civil rights dynamics, all of they, these came into play in the early 70s and actually influenced the progression of lesbian gay civil rights in, in Ireland in the early 70s. And I think where we find ourselves today is a product of that early dynamic. Is there a bit of contention about when Pride officially started? Oh, don't get me started about <laughs> this. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think here's the thing, you know, it's it, there's revisionism, revision, we see revisionism every single day of our lives and I think people for want of convenience and everything else or because of, uh, because people want to settle scores uh, find it easy to sort of uh, shoehorn our history into something that's convenient and palatable there's a lot of confusion here about the uh, the beginning of pride uh, because the the pride parades which of course is the most visible part of pride in Dublin and all around the country the very first pride parades in Ireland began in June 1983 but pride has been celebrated here since what was called Irish Gay Pride Day 27th of June 1974 and then Pride Week itself the very first Pride Week anywhere on the island of Ireland uh, was celebrated in 1979 and then in 1980 there weren't enough people to sustain a parade but I remember because I was a fresh-faced 19-year-old fired up with enthusiasm about wanting to change the world and uh, 16 of us wandered around (laughs) Dublin city centre palming bemused shoppers around Grafton Street and St. Stephen's Green with leaflets explaining (laughs) the history of Stonewall riots and asking people to wear uh, a pink triangle, which was the symbol of gay liberation at the time. Mm. Um, So, yeah, we've been celebrating Pride in one form or another since the beginning of the 80s, uh, effectively. And things began to uh, accelerate throughout the mid-80s and then it all fell apart. It fell apart as a result of... Exhaustion on the part of activists at the time. Also, uh, people were burnt out. Our friends were dying from AIDS in shocking numbers. And also emigration just had uh, an extraordinary impact on people. Uh, The late 80s was just a very difficult time in Ireland. Extraordinary levels of poverty, an awful lot of brittle homophobia, a lot of gay murders. And people were leaving the country not just for economic uh, advantage. People were leaving because it just wasn't a nice place socially to live. 
Mm. And what were the steps that the community, the LGBT community in general, took to kind of get through that difficult period and emerge into a much more forgiving era? I think there were many strands, and, and it's a good question to ask. I mean, one, there was always there was always the the uh, political, the, the, the legislative program was advancing from the beginning of David Norris's constitutional action in 1977, and he had our future president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, on board as the senior counsel. That was an 11-year-long process. He started that in 1977. It it um, ran its way through the 1980s until he actually won his case. It was dismissed in the High Court. He opened his case uh, during Gay Pride Week 1980 and uh, the case was dismissed then. It went to the Supreme Court, dismissed there, and then he uh, cha- he challenged it in Strasbourg. So there was the there was a legislative programme, ran its way through the 80s and 90s. But side by side with that we have, and of course I think it's really important, Pride itself w- is another aspect of its part of our social history. It's part of the fabric of people simply getting out there and being visible and presenting positive images of LGBT people. And that has an enormous transformative quality. And for me, it's as significant as any amount of work that's done behind the scenes uh, in our legislature. People who are from Ireland will be aware about David Norris and his campaign to actually reverse the the legislation that was there essentially criminalising homosexuality. But people that aren't from here may not be um, so aware. So would you just like quickly run us through the actually narrative and what he had to do to, to, to get it yeah, overturned. There were two two really nasty pieces of Victorian legislation from the late 19th century. The Offence Against a Person Act, which actually also outlawed prostitution and abortion. It actually replaced a death penalty for uh, intercourse between men with 10 years imprisonment. And then there was another piece of legislation, the Criminal Law Amendment Act, that outlawed any form of intimacy between men in public or in private. So for example, if the two of us, Steve, were walking down the street holding hands or kissing in public, we would be liable to two years in prison. Now, here's the thing, and those laws remained on the statute books right up until 1993, and it's one of the reasons we're we're celebrating the decriminalisation of those two pieces of legislation. We were one of the last countries in Europe, along with Cyprus and Russia, uh, to have some of the most egregious, offensive, discriminatory um, legislation in place. Here's the thing. Although not many men were sent to prison each year, certainly not in the late 1980s Mm. in Ireland, it's impossible to quantify the number of people who left the country, men and women. And women weren't, lesbians weren't specifically uh, impacted by the the law. Um, They weren't weren't criminalised by the law. But the very existence of the law had the effect of criminalising all homosexuality. And also, and here's the thing that we often forget, the the effect of the law was to make taboo any form of interaction by government and civil society in the reality of our lives. And how this played out is that government censored itself. You know, it simply didn't want to know about its sexual minorities. And you can see the positive impact of decriminalisation in, in June 1993, when almost immediately we began to be valued, uh, recognised in values as consumers. Businesses mm. started chasing us as consumers. Pink pound. The pink pound, the pink, the pink punch yeah. suddenly became a thing. Before decriminalisation, that wouldn't have happened. You have government also pouring money into actually making a thing about social inclusion and diversity. And that's also indicative of, of, of Irish society growing up 
and our legislature growing up and actually becoming aware of its of its minorities. But also, it just simply wouldn't have happened before decriminalisation. Money wouldn't have been poured into cultural festivals, into, for example, Dublin Pride itself. You wouldn't have had um, Dublin City Council actually bending over backwards to accommodate uh, Dublin Pride. It's, one of, the big, it's one of the biggest marches and festivals yeah, in the city Yeah, you wouldn't have had businesses. It's only after decriminalisation that you actually see the acceleration of interest in embracing the reality of our lives. And what you see from 1993, mid-1993 onwards, uh, is you see the government just simply paying attention to our existence. And mm. how would you say things are today? So if you skip, skip forward 25 years after the um, repeal of the criminalisation, um, would you say Ireland is a comfortable place to grow up um, a homosexual? Uh, undoubtedly so. I mean, look, uh, in terms of our trans le- legislation, we're in the top tier six countries in the world yeah, for, actually, for trans recognition. And that kind of, that slipped in under the radar nearly, what, it, it, how long ago? The year, not long after marriage equality. And it, in, in a way it became, it was eclipsed by marriage equality. And now as a result of uh, the wonderful Centre Fintan Moorfield, of Sinn Féin, Centre of Fintan Moorfield's recent, uh, recently tabled amendments to the Gender Recognition uh, Act to actually lower over the age again for self-determination and I think that's very welcome and, so, and it's advancing a conversation in that area. We're also talking about the needs of our intersex community which is no good. I think we're developing a much more grown up pluralist attitude to uh, some of these topics. The short answer to your question is it's a wonderful Ireland is a wonderful place. There's still unfinished business um, but in terms of legislative uh, reform and more or less everything is in place. I think what we now now need to um, look at is things like our educational system. Mm. We need to secularise our educational system. We need to absolutely, fundamentally ramp up uh, sex ed because uh, rising levels of infection across all demographics are in- indicative of um, an educational process, a sex ed process that's not fit for purpose. So I think there's much work to be done there. You mentioned Ireland was in the, the top six. I was wondering if you could hit on maybe what are the, the absolute best countries in the world what's in the one and two slots where it's absolutely like 100% totally amazing to be a part of that community I suppose Scandinavian countries uh, always the Scandinavian always is yeah. anytime uh, well you know I mean that's no bad thing I mean we 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 like to the socialists amongst us um, <laughs> like to imagine I think we aspire towards a sort of social democratic Nordic Scandinavian cultural paradise and that's no bad thing although if we're going to do that we need to have a, a very grown up conversation about our corporation tax and a whole lot of other things that's a conversation for another day <laughs> and then on the flip side of that where's like the worst place where are the places with the most major problems and issues well well, here's the thing you know it's close to close to home we've got the Middle East uh, as a result of fundamentalist Islam our fundamentalist Christianity both Orthodox and uh, Catholic that are being leveraged to uh, justify political programs of exclusion, whether it's in uh, European Union countries like Poland Mm. or or quite the Baltics aren't that bad, but Poland, certainly Hungary, Poland, Russia, of course, is the case in point. And here's Mm. the thing. some of the laws that the the legislation that uh, and cultural at- attitudes underpinning this sort of um, the attempts to outlaw any form of promo- so-called promotion of homosexuality, they're they're very reminiscent of what Thatcher was doing with Section Twenty Eight of the Local Government uh, Act back in the eighties, and she brought in similar legislation outlawing the so-called promotion of homosexuality, and it had the effect. I mean, first of all, well, how do you quantify promotion 
you know I mean that's such a wide open concept promotion mm. but you're using it to sort of uh, you're using it to justify your own particular brand of bigotry and institutional homophobia and it has the effect of locking down any form of conversation it's not just about closing down the education system but you're, it's, it's locking down a broader societal uh, conversation and interaction we've seen it in Ireland in the 1970s when, when the government attempted to use the Censorship of Publications Act to ban uh, various books and newspapers like uh, Gay News an English newspaper was banned in 1976 and again in 1982 um, and the government used the existence of the criminal law or alleged that these newspapers and publications were indecent or obscene, which of course was a nonsense at the time. But you know, I'm really worried at the rise of fundamentalist religion in Eastern Europe and the way it's being applied by a particular brand of alt-right and nationalist politician, political elite to the way it's being used to leverage their 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 brand of nationalism and um, their brand of exclusion. And that's really Really worrying, and I think more than ever we need the European Union as as a group of uh, countries with shared sovereignty to to get on board to head off this type of egregious behaviour and to say that there's no place in the social the culture of social democracy that underpins the European Union. So you did mention um, how AIDS was ravaging the uh, the gay community in Ireland in the eighties, and especially, and that, of course everyone would know now that that was a, a problem worldwide. But can you can you take us through the interaction between the LGBT movement as it's been rising and how the general attempts to try and tackle the the outbreak of AIDS and even uh, and not just the outbreak as well, but like addressing the stigma behind it and how that's evolved? Yeah, it's I'm I'm actually glad you're you're I'm glad you're addressing this because. Um, one of the things that's rarely recognised is how when we look at the AIDS crisis in Ireland or the wars I call it between more roughly between 1984 and the first notified cases and 1996 when antiretroviral therapies arrived and people more or less stopped dying and were able to begin imagining living ordinary lives, reasonably ordinary lives. But that sort of more decades, that lost decade, one of the things that's remarkable when we look back and try and historicise the, the impact of AIDS in Ireland is acknowledging and marvelling at how an embattled gay community, a lesbian and gay community, stepped up to the plate in the absence of radical action by government and, and civil society. The lesbian and gay community, already under enormous pressures, already under siege as a result of legislation, criminalisation and, and, and marginalisation, an embattled lesbian and gay community stepped up to the plate, went out and fundraised and tried to modulate um, uh, the horror in our midst where our brothers were dying in some cases quite appalling circumstances, kicked out of their houses, uh, where I, I had friends where, who were looked after by their lovers and when they, uh, when they, when they eventually died, their, their families refused to recognise the role of their lovers because, of course, we had no relationship recognition or marriage at the time. I mean, there was some shocking times. They were really shocking times. Uh, I, I often wonder if I've ever actually truly got over that period. And I don't think we've... There's a generation of men and women, and not just uh, gay men and women, but uh, some of our heterosexual brothers and sisters who nursed their friends, nursed their family members through that awful period. And I, I often think we've never been allowed sufficiently grieve. We've never been allowed acknowledge 
uh, the trauma and the hurt. And it's one of the reasons why I uh, launched a campaign for an Irish AIDS memorial there in Maynooth uh, University two years ago. And I was really delighted to hear uh, President Michael D. Higgins Reference the need for some way of memorialising that period, and I think it's now, we're now at a sufficient remove. It's that we need to find a way. It's in our recent history. We need to find a way of uncovering that past, much of it which has remained hidden, much of it where there has been very little cultural response uh, to that period. We need to find a way of digging deep and and, and getting to the bottom of how we lived and survived that to live through and survive that period and the other thing is and I'll just bring it back to um, uh, how you opened this question uh, this conversation bring it putting it to the service of um the place we find ourselves in right now with rising levels of infection, not just amongst men who have sex with men, but across the board where something, the message is not, where the message of safer sex and bodily integrity when it comes to um, uh, uh, sex is simply not working. Uh, now. No, it's not working now. And we have rising levels of HIV, we've rising levels of chlamydia, we've rising levels of syphilis. So something is not working and we need to we need a new, we need some new intervention. Um, and I, I think one of the things that will, it will help be a part of some new radical intervention is finding a way to an Irish AIDS memorial, finding a way to memorialise because past. Because what we do is when we find a way to look at how a previous generation developed coping mechanisms and survival strategies. When we look at how a previous generation, our uncles or nans and our, our mothers or fathers, our grandma, our grandparents, whatever that generation is, when we look at the coping mechanisms and survival set, uh, strategies of a previous generation, I think we can take that experience and we can put it to the service of the a place we find ourselves in now, a newer generation who are under pressure from a different set of circumstances, but we can apply the lessons learned from that period. We can apply it to where we find ourselves today. And I think that's really important. Mm. And we haven't done it so far. I think it's important that we do that. And it's one of the reasons why I feel we need an Irish AIDS memorial. How is the movement to get the AIDS memorial going along? Is it, has it been recognised by apart from the present name checking is there uh, actually like is there anything happening to get one built we have we're in the middle of a public consultation process um, myself and a number of other uh, people are talking to all of the stakeholders and what I mean by stakeholders are everybody who has an active interest in this and starting with inner city communities ravaged by heroin and methadone who lost a huge number of people um, of course because that's, that's, that's another part of the AIDS yeah, academic it's not just about gay, here, gay yeah. community yeah, yeah, yeah. And hemophiliacs, frontline sexual health educators, uh, hospital administrators, all the people who were at the front line of care as well and who are still at that, I think, you know, and we all and who invested something in it. And I think we all have reason to sort of um, be involved in the conversation. And it's, you know, here's the thing, you know, we ritualize our past in so many ways, whether it's 1916, uh, we ritualize um, the uh, the memory of the First World War, the Second World War. We, ri- we ritualize 1798. We ritualize sacrifice and trauma in our history. And there are very good reasons why we do that. And I think it's time to apply that process to our more recent history. And also to sometimes when we do that, we can find ways to dig deep into our collective empathy 
and find a way of becoming a little bit more grown up about about how we handled things. Mm. You know, it's the eighties was I. <laughs> The 80s was just a really shitty, horrible mm. time in Ireland. And here's the thing. I'm reluctant to, in a way I'm reluctant to have this conversation with you guys because there's always a danger when we, when we tiptoe back to the past. So first of all, um, there's, you spoke earlier on about revisionism, Steve. There's always a danger that, you know, every, every step back into the past becomes clouded by revisionism. But also, I don't want somebody who's, who's listening to us having the chats here to go, God, they've got such a chip on their shoulders, but they get over themselves. You know, it's, it, you know, there are still people out there right now today living brittle, miserable lives, you know. So it's, I, I don't want to come across as, as somebody who's saying, you know, oh God, can we hold on a moment? It was all really horrible. You don't know how lucky you are right now. It was all really scaldy back in the 1980s. There's no doubt it was, you know. But you do also, at the same time, you do see, when you look back, you can see the green shoots of recovery. You can see the country beginning the process, which we're still doing right now. The country beginning to slough off um, the the effect of fairly suspect religious ideology and morality. You know, you can see, conversely, it's really funny, you know, I actually think the visit of John Paul II in 1979 was the beginning and the end of religious feudalism in oh, Ireland. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, we had, um, a couple of weeks ago, we had a gathering of uh, Magdalene Laundry survivors. And as yeah. you say, like, that's, that's an absolute recognition of another horrendous thing that we did in the name of religion in this country. And the year is going to be bookended by the visit of, of a Pope. Yeah. And by <laughs> the way, you know, I, I, I actually had a lump in my throat there the other day when I saw the press reports of Michael D and Sabina welcoming the survivors of the Madeleine La- uh, Magdalene Laundry uh, laundries to Arsenal draw and I just thought you know what it's never too late for this sort of thing because we are all impacted by it and it's all about us being on this journey of discovery where we ask ourselves what does it mean to be Irish mm. right now living right now in this country where I think there's this hunger to, to, there's a hunger to sort of throw off the last remaining vestiges of a sort of feudalistic oppression. There's a hunger to, to modernise ourselves. There's a hunger to actually socialise ourselves. There's a hunger to, to just, to do whatever it takes to, to make this country a fair and just society. And you saw it, we saw it at play with marriage equality, the whole process. It became something more than just letting the gays get married. We, we've seen it with, with um, Repeal D8. It became much more than just simply allowing women the right to choose to have abortion. And I hope, I hope all of this, this social and political dynamic can be channeled and funneled even more and it becomes this sort of a, a rolling ball that, um, yeah, envelops us all in some sort of collective enthusiasm and desire for, for change and to just finish a job that we started, we set out to do in 1916, which is build a socialist republic and we're nowhere near doing that. We're on the way but we're still nowhere near, near doing it. And I hope I live to see the day that we finish mm. that job. Taking the conversation back to Pride as we hit, head into the home stretch of the podcast. What are your feelings on the commercialization of Pride and big brands getting involved, like the, like the likes of Smirnoff, say, have, have been a big player in this and tech companies, Airbnb, Google. Okay, 
I'll try and answer this in two in two smart short ways. One is <laughs> uh, Gilbert Gilbert Baker, who died last year. Uh, he was the inventor of the rainbow flag, and I asked him a question when the Absolute sponsored him to come over and present one uh, uh, a miniature rainbow flag to the National Gallery of Ireland, and I asked him why he'd never patented the rainbow flag, and. Of course, he was a little bit like Jim Fitzpatrick, who decided not to patent his iconic Che Guevara Mm. uh, uh, silkscreen. He said he wanted it to be open access. He wanted it to be open source. And he felt he wanted the world to own it. And that led into my next question, which is part the first way of uh, of answering this question. It led into the how we address the embrace of the, the corporate sector in Pride. And he said, well, first of all, he remembers the Coors boycotts in San Francisco and New York back in the 70s. He remembers not being valued as a consumer. He remembers being refused a service in bars, which I do. In 1981, me and my boyfriend, I was 21, were asked... 2021. We were asked to leave a bar. We weren't even kissing or anything or necking. We were just holding hands, nonchalantly in love for the first time. And in the absence of, of, of anti-discrimination legislation, at a time when our sexuality was criminalised, the bar manager came over and said, out, I don't want your sort of people in here. And we had to leave. We were treated just the way travellers have been treated. So today, when I see a bar and, and a corporate actually welcoming me and, and making me visible as a consumer, I'm going, well, do you know what? We're somewhere along the process of acceptance. Mm-hmm. We're another step along the process of acceptance. And that is no bad thing. Now, the trick is, how do we, how do we modulate that type of uh, commercialization. And in terms of how it plays out with something like the Dublin Pride Parade, because it is a very real concern and there are lots of people who are finding it difficult to embrace the interest of the commercial sector. And I would suggest we should be doing something like this. First of all, we need to reinstate Dublin Pride Parade back onto the main streets of Dublin. I'm told that it costs, it's going to cost a million euro to actually stop the Lewis as we do for, the, for St. Patrick's Day Parade, to stop the Lewis and actually run the Dublin Pride Parade through the main streets of Dublin. Well, do you know what? Either the corporate sector or Dublin City Council or the government needs to pony up that cash and make it happen because the Dublin Pride Parade, not only is it the second largest parade in the country after St. Patrick's Day, it brings in enormous amounts of money to the country. It creates a fabulous party vibe. It is essentially the Mardi Gras party, the Dublin City Council has always wanted it is a Mardi Gras party for the entire city with a big queer heart that everybody is allowed to embrace. It is relatively hassle free, and we should be doing. We should be falling over ourselves to actually make it work. And the Pride Parade, which is the most visible tip of Pride Week, needs to happen on the main streets of Dublin. I do not want to see it shunted mm. down some back streets. We need to share all of our queer love with all of Dublin City. So it fundamentally, absolutely, has to be on the main streets of Dublin. And to do that, we need to embrace the corporate sector to make that happen, to finance it. And I would suggest to head off the criticism that some people have, we do something like, for example, Bank of Ireland wants to put a float in and rather than have all of their branding, their branding just willy-nilly thrown over float, a year before the parade, we put them in touch with an, a non-profit, uh, a, a corporate, a non-profit queer queer organisation like Belong to the National LGBT Youth Organisation or something, and we say, okay, here's a story. Bank of Ireland is going to give you a load of cash. You go off and design and commission a float and a music installation. The two of us will have our branding on it. Mm. Happy days, win-win for everyone. 
Mm. And I think that's the way to go in the yeah. future. I think a lot of the scepticism that comes around with the corporate um, investment and the likes of pride parades, it comes around this idea that it's a bunch of stuffy white men in a boardroom, you know, factoring this in as part of their marketing spreadsheets. When really, I know from personal experience, I used to, I used to live in San Francisco and I worked at a tech company that was avidly involved in, in the pride parade, the local pride parade. And it was organized by a group, um, uh, it was, I used to work at LinkedIn and the group was called Out at In, which was the LGBT internal yes. group. Yeah. And, um, and they were the ones who advocated and pushed for it and led it. And they were, they've been involved in this parade for years and years before they ever joined LinkedIn. And now you've just nailed it in terms of, of giving expression to diversity in the workplace and social inclusion. And you know what? A load of the techs and big corporates are driving that level of visibility in the workplace and social mm. inclusion. It's the tech sector that are driving it. And I just think we are experiencing, we're, we're on the cusp of a whole new sociocultural political paradigm in this country. And all the corporates have a huge part to play and we should be embracing it. But I think the trick is to actually be smart about how we embrace those concerns. Absolutely. So... We'll go back to the um, the to the Irish Queer Archive. That's um, probably your. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's where I think we also need to be finding ways. The Irish Queer Archive is celebrating its tenth anniversary. It was transferred on Bloomsday 2008 to uh, the National Library of Ireland. It was a very significant moment. I remember saying it. Where the was time. it before that? It was in a storage facility out in. I was going to hope you said your garden <laughs> or something. That was that was less than ideal. No, it was a storage facility out in Kylemore. It was less than ideal. Come to Tobin, one of our greatest writers, who also happens to be gay, made a very good point and he said, he spoke at the transfer and he says, you cannot write a history of late 20th century Ireland without a referencing the Irish Queer Archive. It is not just about LGBT heritage, it is about all our history is encapsulated in that collection. And for that reason, I would like to see us find ways to work with the National Library of Ireland to help them digitise and catalogue so much of the collection that remains in storage out of access for people. It's not being exploited because the National Library of Ireland is possibly the poor relation of all our national cultural institutions. It just does not have the money and we need to be smart and maybe that's the job for knocking on the doors of the, of the big corporates once we get them to sort of uh, choreograph the Dublin Pride Parade the mm. next big project will be like how to help finance the cataloguing of, of the Irish Career Archive. You're very you're very pro uh, getting the corporations involved because you have a very long list of asks <laughs> which is fine. Yeah, well you know what it's, it's Well they got the cash. <laughs> yeah and I just think you know I'm just, I'm all about inclusion. I'm really all about inclusion. We all have to find ways to work together, you know, because I, at the end of the day, we may actually be taking different journeys, but I think we all have the same destination in view. We're just actually, we all arrive at it. We all actually take a different route to it. But I think we all have a shared destination, which is to make this country work for us economically, to make this country a, a beautiful place for our children and our grandchildren to grow older in a place where we can actually feel we've done our part to make it safe, to make it humane, to make it just and to make it um, culturally and creatively productive for us. You know, it's we all want that. You know, I just don't think none of us are in disagreement about that. It's the, the methods we use to achieve that that maybe, you know, are problematic for people. Final thing then. So we read recently that you're working on a one man show. You've been 
prepping it for a couple of months now oh and it was supposed God. to launch during the summer but I think you've pushed it back to November is it? No he's launching it here on this podcast right now live with us <laughs> yeah. Take it away Tony you know what? Guys I'm loving you for allowing me flag this okay and giving me the plug um, so um, my show which is called I Am Tony Walsh is essentially going to look at social and political change in Ireland over the last 40 years through the prism of my life it's going to be a fairly tragic comic one hour show it's due to open in the Project Arts Centre in Dublin in the last week in November and it's going to close on World AIDS Day which I think is fairly opposite because actually there we talk about the AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s so yeah it's going to be there's going to be laughter and tears Perfect. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll plug that again, of course, closer to the time when you're getting ready to do it. That's um, very now, kind of you. Thank you very much. I just want to ask one more question. What are you going to do for Pride? Well, I'm so annoyed about the route, I'm going to have to be dragged scri- screaming <laughs> and kicking onto it. I'm going to walk in it. But uh, do you know what I'm going to do? I am going to find some place to have a nice glass of fizz and I'm going to quietly toast the beautiful country I find myself living in right now and feel that we are in a really lovely place and it's just a great time to be alive. We never ever get to end our political discussions with a a sentiment like that. So that's fantastic. Richie, there you go. It It finally finally happened, happened, Tony. After a year and a half of doing this bloody show, we finally ended on a happy note and I thank you for that. I think I'll actually, wherever I am in the world, I will join you in toasting to Ireland. Super. Slauncha. Slauncha indeed. Slauncha. Thanks very much. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.